Okay, Pasa, Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. I just bought a pressure cooker today. Got some skin in the game. What's up? And speaking of skin in the game, today we've got a maverick of the mushroom renaissance on the pod. Or should I say mushroom revival? You already know. We've got Alex Dorr, founder and CEO of Mushroom Revival, one of the quintessential purveyors of premium quality functional mushroom products, and also the host of the number one mushroom podcast in the world, which also goes by the moniker Mushroom Revival. Above and beyond all of that, Alex is just a solid dude who is obsessed with the power of cordyceps and mushrooms in general, and he puts his money where his mouth is. My man's got all kinds of mushroom juju and creative energies afloat, educating the world about the power and the efficacy of fruiting body mushroom tinctures while planting a tree for every single product sold. More than 45,000 trees to date. Yo! I can also say that Alex has been extremely supportive of our own little micropreneurial venture here with this podcast. And he's completely earnest in his willingness to support our little corner of the mushroom universe here. That means the world to us. Thank you, Alex. So today we're going to talk about Alex's entree into the world of mushrooms. His karate kick through the front door. We're talking mycoremediation and its vast potential and also its practical limitations. We are also talking about the science of cordyceps. We're talking about how he scaled mushroom revival. We're talking transparency in business culture, a little bit of mushroom history, and a lot more juicy morels of mycopreneurial wisdom and demystification all coming up right now. So let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Alex Dorr of Mushroom Revival. Thanks for joining us on the Mycopreneur Podcast. How's it going today, Alex? Going well. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. So, Alex, I understand that you actually have an undergrad degree in mycology from Hampshire College. First of all, I had no idea that undergrad mycology studies were even a thing, especially 10 years ago. And I find that many people in the mushroom universe and the, quote, shroom boom that's happening now are coming from divergent backgrounds and are citizen scientists and coming to mycology. What prompted you to formally study mycology in your undergraduate years? You know... Hampshire is a really unique university in which you can create your own major. So it's not a typical university in, in any stretch of the imagination. So I think that was my upper hand of, of going to a super liberal arts, you know, open-minded school that I could craft my own major. And so, you know, I studied microremediation and, and that's what I wrote my final thesis on. The book that I wrote was actually my final thesis. And you won't find that at a, at a typical university, but it, it really started in, in the first week I went to Hampshire and someone offered me a full solo cup worth of psilocybin containing mushrooms. And that was my first journey with these mushrooms ever. I didn't know what a dose was. I didn't know, know the ap appropriate amount to take my first time or what set and setting was, you know, I, I smoked a lot of weed at that point, but I never had uh, much experience with, with entheogens. 
I asked how much, and, and I was hoping you know they they would give me some, and I would I would parse it out over the next few months or something like that. And uh, they said, no, I'll, I'll give you the whole solo cup on the spot if you if you just eat it right in front of me. And you know, it's like okay, it's a it's a cup worth. You know, how how much is this going to do me in? And it did. It rocked my world. And so I had a karate kick through the front door with with mushrooms and. Uh, that night totally changed my life. I, you know, was on a couple pharmaceuticals. I flushed them down the toilet after that night. I had totally ego-shattering experience where I was one with the universe. I saw the birth and death, experienced the birth and death of the universe just, you know, uh, in a matter of milliseconds over and over and, and all these, you know, inexplicable phenomena. Uh, so I stepped away from that experience of like, okay, these things are really special. And I saw lasting effects from them just in that one experience of, okay, these grow out of the ground. They had such an effect on my mood and overall, you know, perspective on life and changed my habits, started changing my friend groups and uh, stopped smoking cigarettes after that experience. And they kind of kept on the back burner. And I originally went to school for philosophy. And so in philosophy class, you know, we're just sitting around a table talking about life, the meaning of life, these really deep conversations. And I remember one day I was microdosing and we were just sitting around a table talking about the meaning of life, right? And I see these two, it was fall time, and I see these two young kids just playing in the leaves, having the time of their life. And they're, they're just loving life and they're so happy and everyone in the room was so serious and talking about the meaning of life and I was like that right there you know just being connected with nature and playing and and just living your life and not just sitting around a table and talking about it so at that point I was like okay I got to get more into nature and farming and um, being more hands-on and so I started growing my own and you know, I took a couple trips, one to like Vietnam, and I saw some mushroom scene there, and and but I saw a lot of plastic waste and a lot of trash, and uh, there wasn't a lot of structures in a lot of the towns that I visited to deal with it. And so I was like, okay, there's a problem, not only in Vietnam, but all around the world of, of trash accumulation and, and just waste in general. And, and us as a human species, we haven't really figured out an adequate way to deal with it other than just piling it up, right? And it wasn't until I went to Ecuador on a field study, a study abroad where studying different biodiversity of different ecosystems and we were in the Amazon rainforest and you can imagine how many mushroom species were there. And I saw so many cordyceps species. I was studying leaf cutter ants and their ability to actually farm fungi and mycelium. So they, they nibble pieces of leaves and bring it back to their nest and actually chew it up into this mash and grow mycelium off of it and eat that mycelium as a sole food source. So they're the most sustainable mushroom farmers in the world in, in my opinion um, but it wasn't until I, I saw we're staying at this research station and it was also uh, Warani land which is a, the biggest indigenous group in Ecuador and uh, it was also a, a, a site for an oil refinery and an oil mining uh, station 
And long story short, I was I was able to stumble upon some unlined pits of oil just sitting in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, just reeking, uh, and was able to interview some of the Ronnie people and, and get their perspective on, you know, this extraction um, and, and the negative effects on their way of life and their health and things like that. Um, I was able to study just effects of biodiversity and the negative impact humans were having on life in general, not, not only fungi and human health, but bacteria, plants, animals, all these different things. And it really hit home of we're at a turning point and we have to act fast uh, or else, and it's not even saving the planet, right? The, the planet will be fine. It's really saving the human race because we're fucked. <laughs> we're, the, we're the new kids on the block, right? We're, and we're just going a thousand miles per hour into the fiery pits of hell, so to speak, you know, and there's, and we need to change, um, uh, our relationship to the natural world in, in an, a super fast manner. So, you know, I, that right there of seeing the online pits, doing research on micro remediation of, oh, you know, that's one potential solution, right? And so that just got me fascinated with fungi. I went back to school, finished my major in mycology, um, and wrote the Microremediation Handbook as my final thesis. And long story short, that yeah, I signed my life away to the to the fungi and never turning back. Well, that makes two of us and hopefully a lot more in the near future as more and more people are turning on to the extraordinary capacity for collaboration between humanity and fungi. You mentioned a couple books that changed your life in some of the research I did for this podcast. One of them is Food of the Gods. That was a huge, pivotal, seminal work for me that I read my senior year of high school before going to the University of San Francisco. It blew my mind. Nothing had resonated with me at such a level, um, at least in the canon of literature up, up until that point, and also got me on the path to thinking very intentionally and conscientiously about taking a macro dose and exploring this natural intelligence, this sentient intelligence. Another one you mentioned is Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets. For me, what really was a turning point and has to do with mycoremediation was when I read Trad Cotter's book, Organic Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation. And I had never heard of mushroom packaging and of mushroom inks and all of these different niches, ecological and industrial niches that could be filled by fungi. So that was huge for me. Now let's build off a little bit of your last point. You wrote your thesis on mycoremediation. Are, are you actively involved right now in any mycoremediation outfits or, or efforts? And can you walk us through some of your efforts in that capacity? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I'll give you a little backstory that will give some color to my answer. So in writing the book, I, I realized that most of the resources that the average person has available to research microremediation is very citizen science. It's very surface level. Um, a lot of times it's pseudoscience. It doesn't really give the full picture of what's going on. A lot of the approaches is let's just take oyster mycelium and throw it on whatever toxin is available. And I'm honestly, it's starry-eyed. It's a starry-eyed, feel-good, fuzzy view that makes you feel good, right? It, it's like, oh, wow, it's a great solution. 
but does it work? No, it doesn't. And that's the downside, which I realized through writing the book is, oh, you know, a lot of these solutions that people are, are putting out there, they sound really great, but realistically in the real world, they don't really work. Um, but not to say it's all bad. I think it, it serves a purpose in inspiring people to get interested in it and, and to actually give a shit about the environment and actually, you know, doing something to help. Right. Um, and so in that, in that aspect, I, I, I don't, want to discredit inspiration i think inspiration and being starry-eyed is the start and why so many people are so into mushrooms is because they start being starry-eyed and really passionate and then you can do a little more of the the deeper dive where it gets a little more less um fun but you know you you start to learn of what is mycology right and and to dive deeper into the nitty-gritty stuff but through that that research i realized that there are a lot of researchers and industrial companies doing this. And I came to a fork in the road of, you know, do I get my master's, my PhD and spend 30 years locked up in a lab um, and having to learn, you know, I never took chemistry or, you know, uh, organic chemistry XYZ in, in college. So I would have to start from scratch and it was not my strong suit in any any means and I have a lot of friends that a lot of these sciences are just they come really naturally to them um, but for me it, it was not and it's like learning a language right I was just I didn't know any vocabulary where they were conversational and so I, I realized that was a huge mountain ahead of me and I realized that industrial microremediation although prevalent and there's a lot of um, huge scale microremediation happening and, and making a, a massive impact on the world, uh, these companies are also having to compete with these other cheaper, dirtier methods to clean up toxic waste. And more often than not, they lose, right? Um, and so they, these companies, whether it's the, the oil companies making an oil spill, they'll pay to just submerge it underwater or bury it or burn it. Um, and they don't want to pay the longer, more ecological route to clean it up. And then it was like, well, do I want to spend my life cleaning up the dirty, you know, mistakes from Chevron and all these other companies when they will just keep doing it, right? And, and it might even give them more incentive to just keep doing it if if there's more ecological ways to clean it up, right? And I didn't want to be their personal janitor. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really solve the problem, right? That the initial problem is still there that we're creating it in the first place, right? And so that got me really into, you know, functional mushrooms of answering the question of why are people even creating toxic waste in the first place? And that's because I, I feel like people are disconnected. And I feel like us as a species we are the most disconnected organisms on planet Earth, if not the, uni the known universe, right? And I, I feel like that dis-ease, like we're not at ease because we're not connected. And so psilocybin was obviously my first 
thought of, you know, but because of the laws and regulations, when I started Mushroom Revival, uh, I decided to go with functional mushrooms that had a big impact on, on health and wellness um, to, to help that root of the problem, which is people, right? And, and through that and through education, fungi is a great portal to help people connect with the natural world and have a, a, an appreciation for nature, right? And through that appreciation and connection, we realize that we are not separate from, from nature and therefore the thought of throwing a plastic wrapper onto the ground or even even buying something with excess plastic kind of hurts, right? And so apart from that, we we decided to plant trees. Uh, you know, we take a portion for every sale and, and it goes to planting trees around the world. Uh, that was an easier approach, right? Um, you know, when when I, t I took a bioremediation class in college and the professor had decades of experience with something called phytoremediation. So it's using plants to remediate toxins and filter toxins. Also bacterial remediation. Um, and he never talked about mycoremediation. And it really annoyed me, right? But there was a reason is because phytoremediation, it's really easy right people understand plants they know how to plant plants they're really easy to take care of plants it's a lot harder when it comes into mushrooms and so there's a lot more funding there and he just made a point of look if you want to go into remediation just stick with plants and bacteria don't even focus on fungi which as a young person i was even more passionate of like okay i'm going into i'm doing exactly the opposite of what you just told me um and i had a friend juliet who's still a really good friend to this day and we actually just took a trip to costa rica and she was also really interested in phytoremediation and we also we, we used to argue all the time of like which one was better obviously we're both wrong because um it's a whole system approach right it's it's every organism together but i i did this research and part of the the book was to degrade certain toxins in cigarette butts and I did the whole research, got thousands of dollars of funding, and I did it, and at the end, I looked back of like, okay, how much did I spend, and what were the materials I used, and what did I actually remediate? And I found that I used more plastic and XYZ than I remediated, and I spent like thousands of dollars to remediate just a small thing. It's like, okay, was that worth it? It was cool, it gets people inspired, it's amazing, but, I could have planted thousands of trees. I could have literally planted a whole forest. And trees are, are form such an amazing relationship with fungi through their mycorrhizal connections, through endophytic fungi, and also through all um, organisms, bacteria, you know, um, slime molds, animals for shelter, um, and even humans to create jobs and food. Uh, and 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 certain functional ingredients in XYZ. So that's why we plant trees, and and it's something that people recognize. They understand trees. It's uh, it creates, I feel like, more um, economic incentive, more um, benefit to communities, and and so that that's where we're staying right now. And and as I get older, and probably when I sell mushroom revival, I'm. 
I'll have more time on my hands to, you know, work with conservation and work with more remediation um, and, uh, you know, spend time on that research. But but until then, we're we're planting as many trees as possible. My, my goal is a million. And, wow. Um, yeah, we've already planted 45,000 plus trees around the world. So we're we still got a long ways to go, but um, it's really exciting. Hey, you're off to a hot start right there. 45,000 is a pretty big drop in the bucket right there. So something you just touched on I want to unpack a little bit that's very near and dear to me is my wife and I live in southern Mexico in the state of Chiapas, and it's one of the most biodiverse regions in the planet. It's extraordinary, and there's these old-growth forests, but because of the demand for timber and tropical hardwoods, they're increasingly cutting into these forests, and it's really hard to regulate because you have so many different competing factions and moneyed interests, etc., But right now with the rainy season coming into play, there's over 13,000 different types of mushrooms that are popping up around the state of Chiapas. And in the local Mayan indigenous markets, we're starting to see some of these wild foraged mushrooms. So what you have is an economic incentive as more people start to realize this. Obviously, it's small potatoes competing against major corporate timber producers and whatnot or extractors, but I see this huge opportunity to create these circular economies where you're protecting the biodiversity of the region and there's some economic incentive. The more people start to turn on to this and the more interest that's being poured into mushrooms, you know, the interest in mushrooms in the West is exploding right now, as you are well aware. And that's something I wanted to touch on is that historically, even, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, mushrooms were like the neglected kingdom. People people didn't really pay much attention to them and there was this mistrust or outright mycophobia in the west so i wanted to hear maybe some of your thoughts about why in the east traditionally has there been such reverence for mushroom supplements for for functional mushrooms going back to chinese medicine and in that whole area of the world why was that popular and revered in that region and in the west people were fearful of mushrooms and why is there a sea change happening right now where there's this massive explosion of interest in mainstream medium mainstream media and the popular consciousness about the value of functional mushrooms and the efficacy of functional mushrooms yeah a few things to unpack there the first i don't think it's east versus west you know i think it's country by country and even region by region um, because there's a lot of countries in, in however you define East and West, but uh, then, you know, they're either mycophobic or mycophilic. And I, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this for many years, and I don't think this is the, the ultimate answer, but I think a lot of it has to do with the, the colonization of, you know, modern day United States of, you know, there were a lot of indigenous tribes uh, that in North America that were using fungi for for thousands of years, right? And that history and practice was was majorly wiped out, right? And you know we had the witch burnings, and it it was really thought of as well, like primitive or um, you know against this uh, paradigm that we're that you know white colonists were trying to create. And um, so I think that had a huge factor into it. And I think, you know, the war on drugs did a number on mycophobia was creating this um, connection with mushrooms and uh, 
like dirty hippies that were against um, the United States and all these things like that. It's not true. You know, that same history is not true in every country that is mycophobic. So I don't know in, in certain countries that don't have that narrative. I don't know why they ended up being mycophobic. Uh, and and certain countries, oh, no, I, you know that that's a really great question, and I'm sure it's very complex, and I'm sure it's it's case by case, right? But I think we're we're seeing a shroom boom, especially in North America, because the rise of the internet and how and social media of how easy it is to spread information. It's incredibly easy. Um, you know, we have these platforms that we can video chat. We have podcasts now. We have, you know, it's so easy to make a movie. You can make a movie on your iPhone. You could, um, you know, a, a TikTok video can go viral about mushrooms, XYZ. Uh, whereas back in the day, it was so much harder to spread information. I think that and then also, you know, these mushrooms, a lot of them, are not native to North America or are more accessible now because international trade and, and things. So I think that culmination is, is really playing a huge part in the shroom boom. Awesome. Thanks for the clarification. That's absolutely correct. You know, there's a huge ancestral history with the Mayans and the Olmecs and the Aztecs with mushrooms here in Mexico and of course Eastern Europe. I've been out to Ukraine and Poland and they're total mycophiles out there and go foraging and preserve them in jars. So 100% on that one. Um, let's talk a little bit, let's pivot to talk more about mushroom revival. And I'm very interested in the fact that you led one of the, the growth of one of the first certified organic cordyceps militaris mushroom farms in the Americas. Now, surely you didn't just magically inherit that position where you're doing volume and bulk and whatnot. I'm curious about what your first cordyceps cultivation attempts and functional mushroom cultivation attempts looked like. And were you in the dorms? Were you back at college at Hampshire? And what are some of the obstacles and challenges that you faced and overcame to scale mushroom revival to this incredibly impressive entity that it is today? Yeah, it's, it was a long journey and it still is. Uh, it, you know, it started with a few jars just for my own health and wellness. And then it turned, um, we made the largest and, and the first certified organic uh, cordyceps militaris mushroom farm in the Americas and um, for a certain time in this half of the globe, right? So, it, and, and that really is not saying much because there's not that many people doing it. So in the grand scheme of things, especially compared to farms in China and Thailand, and we're like a speck on the map, right? And really cordyceps cultivation, at least cordyceps interest came really about 2000 years ago. Um, in, in 20 AD, the first, um, so Bouveria Bassiana was listed in Shannon's Materia Medica, uh, which is a traditional Chinese medicine Materia Medica. Uh, and Bouveria Bassiana is kind of a cousin of, of a cordyceps. It's an entomopathogenic fungi that attacks insects. And then, you know, over the next 800 years, we get other species being added to these Materia Medicas, like Cordyceps cicadiae, uh, Ophiocordyceps sinescens was added to the Tibetan Materia Medica. 
And then in, in 1701, a, a French researcher and botanist um, actually found the first Cordyceps militaris. And so that was the starting interest on, on Cordyceps militaris. At least that was the, the first documented. I'm sure other people have found it before and didn't document it, but that was the first documented. Um, in 1867 was Cordyceps militaris. So it's been, it's been grown for hundreds of years and it, it's not new uh, in, in any sense. And in 1894, a few researchers at Cornell University actually grew the first Cordyceps militaris in the U.S. So in the U.S., we've been growing it for over 100 years or so. Uh, and, you know, in 1932, the first people to grow it in jars on rice. And then in the 1980s in China, it really blew up on a mass commercial scale. And the scale there is unbelievable. I mean, they're growing millions and millions of kilos every year. Uh, and, and that's like the biggest farm. So overall, I, I can't even put a number on it. It's mind boggling at, at the quantity that they're producing. Um, and we really started to see a resurgence of people starting to grow Cordyceps militaris and probably around 2015. Someone by the name of Ryan Paul Gates started growing it again, and um, you know many more people started coming into it. Um, and long story short, you know through a ton of trial and error, we we grew our farm, and it and you know growing mushrooms is hard to begin with, right? But especially cordyceps. Um, cordyceps are are a different vision. So they're totally different in what they eat. They're totally different in in the containers in which they grow, the the temperature, the pH. So it's a totally different beast. And I can't even tell you how many times we we almost gave up, and and how many thousands of hours and thousands of dollars that we wasted, and and how many bins of trichoderma, which is a mold that we just grew and had to clean out in using cold ice and uh you know it was a nightmare in, in certain days and a lot of work but you know we tried a ton of different things and mostly failure but we we had a couple successes and at the end of it you know we found a commercial technique that really worked for us and we were able to grow cordyceps on a large scale up to then it was just kind of hobby people growing it in their closet or something like that and and we we were the first people to actually take it on on more of a commercial scale um so you know on 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 the the biggest scale people like medium commercial but um the techniques that we put together you know were, were one of the first to so people could replicate and and you know make their farm into a success and we had the option of you know, do we patent this? Um, do we keep it proprietary? Do we keep it ourselves? Uh, and and you know, we made the decision. No, we're gonna we're gonna record it and release a YouTube video and make it for free, right? And we had people. Hell that yeah! Were like, yeah, we're like, yeah, I'm not gonna charge a cent for this. You know, I'm gonna make it entirely free. I'm not gonna patent it, and and anyone can have access to it and copy exactly what we do. We documented every single detail. You know, and we didn't leave anything out. We documented it and, and we put in all our mistakes too. We said, don't do this <laughs> or else you're going to make the same mistakes we did because we tried it, right? And that felt really good because honestly, the more farmers we have, the more organic farmers, the more, 
you know, mushroom farmers, the more cordyceps farmers, the world is going to be a better place. And so that was our stance and still is, is that we're going to help anyone. And by helping another farmer, we're, we're helping the whole industry. And, and as a whole mushroom community, we're, we're moving in the right direction. And that abundance mentality is so key and something that I love about the mushroom universe and the mushroom industry, if you will, I find this sense of cooperation over competition. And, uh, you know, you hit on patents a little bit, but we've been having that discussion with various founders of different companies. And there's so many different takes on it so much, you know, people have skin in the game. And I really appreciate the transparency. I appreciate the transparency of the mushroom revival business ethos and culture and all the educational outreach that y'all do with the YouTube videos and with the podcast. I really loved hearing Dennis McKenna on a recent episode. Of course, you know, huge inspiration to a lot of us in the mushroom world. But yeah, dude, so I would love you to weigh in on this debate that uh, a lot of people are having about the difference between a fruiting body and mycelium in tinctures. And pretty much everyone I know has unabashedly said that fruit bodies are the best for making extracts but I feel like I've recently heard Paul Stamets say that mycelium works too do you have any um, opinion about this matter yeah it, it honestly I'm gonna be very very blunt it's not a debate at all in in any sense um, and, and 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 fortunately the people in the companies pushing this narrative that you know mycelium is more potent it lacks any scientific credibility whatsoever and it, it's really just a fuzzy sounding pseudoscience fairy tale right and it's it's frustrating as you know a scientist and as a producer trying to make products that support people's health that in any industry there's a lot of crap right and we saw it first and foremost with you know cbd and if you tried any CBD, there's there's the uh, there's a lot of people that have tried CBD and said, hey, it doesn't work. And um, I don't know if you've had bad CBD and good CBD, but you feel it, right? If you have some good stuff, it is like, holy shit, this is working like crazy. Same thing with, with the functional mushroom space is that there's stuff on the market that's just absolute crap. And there's other stuff that works really, really well. And the companies actually really care about their products. And that comes into the whole mycelium versus fruiting bodies. And for people that don't know what those words mean, I'll just break it down a little bit. So if you think of an apple tree, as a comparison, mushrooms are, are the apples, whereas mycelium you could think of as the roots, right? Uh, the, the roots of the mushroom. So all mushrooms are, they're fruits, right? And they carry seeds or spores in, in mushrooms case. And, you know, a, an easy comparison for people that you know, science bogs them down and, and goes over their head. If you wanted to buy an apple pie, and there's one company selling, you know, an apple pie with nice organic, you know, uh, uh, pink lady apples or whatever, and and another pie with with twigs and and roots and dirt. You would obviously pick the one that has actual apples in it, right? Well, it's the same thing with the functional mushroom space. Is there's a lot of companies out there that only have mycelium and fillers and fluff in their in their products. And they'll put right on the label 100% mushrooms. 
and there's zero mushrooms in the products whatsoever. As a consumer, I mean, that's frightening. Um, it, it's not only really concerning, but it's highly illegal. And honestly, you know, a class auction lawsuit just lined up waiting to happen. And I'm, you know, I'm not a litigious person whatsoever. I'm, I'm, I just want, you know, people to get access to to the good stuff um but i there's a lot of lawyers in california that'll jump on anything and uh, they'll drool at this stuff and i'm 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 worried you know as as much as i don't agree with with the business practices i, I want to make sure that they succeed and i don't want a lawsuit I, I i think they're annoying and it does it discredits everyone so i i, I just hope that these companies change their practice or at least say what's in their product right um and, you know, for people that, that say, hey, 100% mycelium and, and, you know, what, what would be the, the fault in that, right? Well, mycelium, there's a fraction of the compounds in, in the mycelium as composed to the fruiting bodies. And then to make matters worse is that a lot of these companies will grow, especially in North America. This is just uh, really a North America phenomenon that we grow mycelium on grain. Any other country grows in a bioreactor and you get 100% pure filtered mycelium. But for whatever reason, a few companies in, in the United States decided to add all this filler and not filter it at the end. Um, and so you're just getting like 90% fluff and filler and, and, and these you know, non-fungi uh, material. So you know and and that's a problem for for a few things and and a lot of people might and i've had this question a ton it's like well why would these companies do that if they know it's a lot weaker why would they choose to produce that why wouldn't they just do mushrooms right the actual mushrooms and there's a few different reasons um and the first from a growing perspective growing mycelium on grain takes about you know on average two weeks but give or take you know, and on average, it depends on the mushroom, but around two months, right? So it's a fraction of the time to grow mycelium on grain. And so for a business owner, that's really compelling, you know, as a farmer, you know, that's super compelling to, to grow a crop in a fraction of the time, right? It's also a fraction of the space. You only need a fraction of the space to grow the mycelium on grain. Whereas if you grow the mushrooms, you need a separate um, grow space, right? To grow the mushrooms, you need humidity. You need to, it's a lot more complicated. Whereas mycelium on grain, it's just in these bags and you can grow them on a shelf, um, without, you know, misters and all these different things. Uh, and it, and all those things combined, it's a fraction of the cost at the end of the day. So putting the business hat on, you have super high margins and you could grow these these materials really, really cheaply and really fast. Uh, and so for a business owner making a product that's that's really sexy for them, right? Um, how, how can you get the most profits? And um, we, I refuse to go down that route. I mean, we could easily do it and save a ton of money, um, but it, it's not in my ethos. I, I could not sleep at night. I, I literally would have nightmares every night that people would come with like, you know, pitchforks and, and <laughs> torches. <laughs> I, I couldn't nah. do it. And, and, um, 
you know, and, and really a lot of companies are getting away with it because both the consumer and the, and the regulators, they don't know any different, right? They, they don't know what mycelium and fruiting bodies are. They don't know what those words are. I mean, the FDA put, you know, um, and you can look it up, the, the CPG section uh, 585.525, um, they wrote a whole article outlining, you know, companies cannot use mycelium and label it as mushrooms like that. And it's been around since 1976. So it's not new it, it whatsoever. Um, you know, and, and then to add insult to injury, and this is not a phenomenon with just mycelium on grain or just mycelium. This is also fruiting bodies, but some companies choose not to extract their products. And just to boil it down, you know, there's a lot of functional compounds in these functional mushrooms and you need it bioavailable for the body. So a couple, it, it, you need to extract it uh, multiple times with um, different solvents to be able to have these compounds bioavailable to the body. For more, you know, that was the, that was the non-science explanation, but for people that wanting some scientific um, backup, you know, if we look at certain mushrooms or compounds, it, it becomes a, a night and day comparison. So the specific class of compounds called 1316-beta-glucans, which are compounds that are starting to become kind of the standard benchmark for quality, and they're compounds known for supporting the immune system in functional mushrooms they're up to 400 times higher in the fruiting bodies. Um, and, and in the mycelium on grain, it, they're negligible. They're really, really low in any functional mushroom that has ever been studied. And there's decades of, of research with, you know, coming out of many different countries, many different institution researchers, um, and unbiased as well. And, you know, in cordyceps, for example, uh, we did some studies with Bastyr University. We had a friend at the time, Rishi Strauss, spearheading um, these studies. And we found out that Cordyceps militaris had 56 times more cordycepin, seven times more adenosine, up to twice as much pentostatin, and 13 times more amino acids in the fruiting bodies as compared to the mycelium on grain. Um, chaga, for example, not a fruiting body, it's a, it's a sclerotia or a, a canker. Uh, there's little to no betulinic acid, betulin, lupiol, NOTUDL, um, all these major compounds, there's little to no uh, traces of these compounds in mycelium on grain grown in a laboratory. It needs that symbiotic relationship with the birch tree. Uh, and, and reishi, for example, the most notable compounds in reishi, uh, triterpenes, or more specifically, genoduric acids, they're non-detectable in the mycelium, whereas their high amounts in in the fruiting bodies and and these triterpenes are are really important for supporting our body's natural ability to deal with occasional stress and our natural inflammation response post-workout or or other everyday activities and so that's just the surface level i'm not i could talk about it for hours and hours but it, it's really a night and day comparison it's not a debate whatsoever. It, it's it's pretty crystal clear, and it it has been, and it's backed up by 
you know, hundreds of scientific articles and I haven't found one that leaves me question it. And, and let me be clear, I am biased and, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt because I, I do, I am the founder and CEO of a functional mushroom company that does use fruiting bodies. But that being said, I would love to use my on grain. Like I am crossing my fingers that I'm wrong um, or all this research, it, you know, some article comes out that they were all paid uh, to create false information or whatever. They redid all the the hundreds of, of art, uh, experiments and whatever happened. I, I, there's a one in a million chance that will happen, but but I, I hope because it's a fraction of the cost. So just putting on my, my business hat, I'm like, yeah, I would love to use mycelium and save a bunch of money. Uh, but as an herbalist and as someone who really deeply cares about high quality products, I, you know, what, we only use 100% fruiting bodies for that reason is that we're mavericks about high quality. And, and for consumers, you know, Get your fruiting bodies, uh, get really high quality stuff. So make sure it's USDA certified organic. And there's a bunch of other certifications that you get as well. Make sure it's extracted, uh, at least dual extracted. So hot water and alcohol or other polar and nonpolar compounds or solvents. And then also get a, get a high dose as well. So those are my four kind of standards for looking at high quality functional mushroom products. Super awesome. Thanks for breaking that down. And that was my understanding as well. But as I mentioned, a couple of these counter viewpoints, and as you mentioned, these narratives that are being pushed about mycelium and breakthrough research have recently come to my attention. But basically everyone I know who makes tinctures is going with fruiting bodies for explicitly the reasons that you just unpacked right there. And it's another reason with this shroom boom going on, I think it's so important to know your grower or to know the source directly where you're getting things from. As an example, I've got a friend who's a commercial cultivator and he was trying to find a turkey tail supplier because he doesn't currently grow turkey tails and he said four different suppliers sent him false turkey tails that he was able to test and ascertain that these were some kind of substitute before he connected with the farm that he currently has a business relationship with and I think because of this shroom boom there's so many unscrupulous people and players who are coming to the table yeah. and, and trying to fly below the radar and trying to cash in unscrupulously. So that's where I see the education and these conversations and the YouTube videos and the podcast, et cetera. By the way, congratulations on 100th episode of Mushroom Revival Podcast. Super inspiring, super awesome. And may you live uh, another thousand plus episodes or indefinitely, as you say, uh, until you decide that it's time to move into more of a conservation realm and you know move, pass on the business to someone else. But I'm tremendously inspired by the work you're doing. And before we wrap up today, because I feel like we hit on a lot of really good topics on a lot of substance, uh, I, I would love to close off with talking about the impending legal framework around psilocybin containing mushrooms. Um, I'm very connected to friends in Oregon who have supported Measure 109, the decrim movement in California. I understand hopefully it's going to be on the ballot this year or in the new future, near future. And pretty much every psychotherapist I know or people involved in therapy have accepted unanimously that psilocybin mushrooms are, and psychedelic therapies are going to be mainstream uh, part of their practice in the near future. So I listened to the podcast you recently did with Dennis McKenna, as I mentioned, and I wholeheartedly endorse his belief that 
psilocybin mushrooms are the perfect psychedelic. They can't be improved upon, and I don't think they should be tampered with, even though there are various people in the space trying to, you know, minimize or, or mitigate the psychedelic effects and just focus on these other benefits that you get out of it. So I, I don't think that's the case. I think that it's the perfect psychedelic. Of course, we mentioned there are all these investors and entrepreneurs coming to the table who are trying to cash in, trying to patent, and that's been a huge controversy in the space. Um, and in the words of a good friend of mine who actively facilitates psilocybin therapy sessions in Jamaica, the coming years and the, quote, psychedelic gold rush are going to present numerous challenges in filtering signal from noise. There's going to be a lot of snake oil salespeople, a lot of misinformation, a lot of wheeling and dealing in boardrooms and such. Do you foresee legalization of psilocybin mushrooms happening in the near future, let's say next two to three years? And if so, what are some of the ways that we can collectively marshal this psychedelic movement in a conscientious way that doesn't fall victim to these exploitative practices, that doesn't put therapy behind an insurmountable paywall, and that truly honors the evolutionary and revolutionary potential of our psychedelic fungi allies? I'd love to hear some thoughts on this matter. I, I don't see uh, psilocybin being ever fully legalized in the United States. I, I just don't see it ever happening. Uh, possible in other countries, and it is fully legal in other countries like Jamaica, like you just said. But in the U United States, I unfortunately, I just don't see it. I do see it, you know, definitely decriminalized for sure um, and highly regulated in a therapeutic setting. And, you know, in, in uh, Dennis's episode, we were talking about it and I'm, you know, he had the stance of wanting it highly regulated or at least semi-regulated like alcohol or guns where you go to a class and, you know, you learn how to not be dumb <laughs> with these substances and not hurt yourself or other people and, and use it responsibly, right? Because it, it is... Um, as he put it, in an organismal right to to use uh, and have these relationships with with fungi and, and any organism, right? Um, and so, uh, there are going to be companies that you know use exploitative practices and put up paywalls, whether we like it or not. That's bound to happen. It's just gonna happen. But what's amazing about psilocybin is it really is the medicine for the people and I don't think that is going to stop anyone from having access to it, right? Like, uh, sure, a company can come in and charge $8,000 for a retreat, but that won't stop anyone from having access to this because, first of all, you know, it has been used all throughout the world for thousands and thousands of years by all cultures and all peoples, right? So it's not locked into one culture so that that's just first of all and and obviously these these companies need to be aware of cultural appropriation of of you know certain practices in certain cultures but but it's really you know psilocybin mushrooms grow naturally in in, in the wild in every single continent except antarctica um and, and second you know it's ready to go as we talked about in that episode you just you don't need to extract it. You don't need to do anything with it. You just pop, pick and plop, right? So that that's accessible, 
you know, right there, you don't need a, a fancy lab to create a molecule, right? I mean, it, it grows out in the wild or you can grow it under your bed. And, you know, with that, it's incredibly easy, fast and cheap to grow. Uh, and, you know, people like Dennis and Terrence McKenna, uh, you know, made the first, you know, cultivation techs uh, easy for people. And, and it's definitely grown since then. I mean, it's so easy to grow and cheap. So if there are any walls set up, I mean, people can have the tools to grow their own in their house uh, very easy or their community and um, and work around, right? I mean, it's not like LSD where you need a super lab um, and chemistry background to synthesize it or whatever. I mean, mushrooms are so easy. So for that, I'm not worried whatsoever. Um, I think it's bound for people to get greedy and think of it as the next green rush and people to come in and put a bunch of patents and paywalls and whatever they're going to do because that's bound to happen people are going to do it whether you like it or not and just don't associate with them right um but since it's so accessible i i, I think you know it is going to be transformed transformational for for all people from all walks of life you know um from all socioeconomics um levels i mean it, it is really the medicine for the people and so for that i'm not worried at all i'm actually really excited and i, I think there's amazing potential awesome i couldn't agree more i love the fact that uh, that peer-to-peer -peer economy exists with this just being able to build relationships and build networks and as you stated, you know, traveling around the world, I've had the good fortune to do the same. And that's something that launched me on my path to the discovery of mushrooms is to connect with people in Eastern Europe and in Asia and in Hawaii. And even more recently, learning from Darren Springer about the history of mushrooms in Africa and, you know, all these forgotten histories that have just been passed on by oral traditions and whatnot. And I think we're really just scratching the surface is something that's a really exciting time to be around for this and to have more people who are bringing their divergent backgrounds into the world of mushrooms, people who are answering that call, who are saying like, this is something impactful and meaningful in my life, just like you experienced your freshman year there at Hampshire. I had a very similar experience where mushrooms weren't really interesting to me up until I had my first psychedelic experience. And then all of a sudden I recognized this latent potential and I thought, what else is going on here? Like, why aren't we talking about this? Why is this, you know, confined to these remote subcultures and, and fringe pockets of society? Like, this should be available to everyone who wants it, and the education should be out there. And, and I think that's starting to happen now. So it's been really mind-blowing, you know, to be a part of the San, Di San Diego Mycological Society Three years ago, we were just getting, you know, kind of like the nerds and the geeks and a few people in the room. And all of a sudden now, it's like there's this massive mushroom revival of interest and people who are starting to answer the clarion call and say, yeah, this is important in my life too. And like, I want to start cultivating functional mushrooms and exotic fungi. And I want to see what role they can play in my life and how we can have a symbiotic, you know, mutually beneficial relationship. So let's, let's just finish off with, would you like to promote anything in particular that you are actively working on at Mushroom Revival and uh, broadcast anything in particular for our audience? Yeah, I mean, you could always check us out at mushroomrevival.com. We have a ton of blogs. You know, we, we post uh, dozens every month and uh, recipes, all, a bunch of great information. Uh, you can follow us on, on social media at Mushroom Revival. And, you know, we have, we have a whole list of products as well. So if you're interested in functional mushrooms, we have really high quality stuff that we're really proud of. And we 
we're proud to have our QR code that you can scan so you can see all the lab results. We're totally transparent. And a fraction of our, our every sale goes to planting trees around the world. So, you know, you're reviving health inside and out, making the world a better place. And, and you'll feel it. You'll feel good. So definitely check that out. And if you're, you're interested, you can use the code micropreneur, all uppercase letters for 15% off. And then also, you know, we have we have our own mushroom podcast. Definitely check it out and and listen to both of ours and and all the other mushroom goodies out there. We just we just celebrated our hundredth episode, um, and you know, as you were talking about, the Dennis episode is one of our recent ones. That was really good. So, um, yeah, much love, everyone. Please reach out anytime. I love to chat about mushrooms, as you can tell. So, always here for anyone. I really appreciate you coming on Mycopreneur Podcast, Alex. This is a real joy to have you and to get to connect. And you certainly left me with more questions that I'm going to be asking. And I think uh, Mushroom Revival, the blog and the YouTube videos are a great place to start investigating some more of the the scientific background that you were mentioning. Because when you said I could talk for hours, collectively, I think you have talked for hours on the Mushroom Revival Podcast. So a lot of resources there. Um, I just really appreciate you taking the time to connect with us and to show love. So thank you so much, Alex. I hope you have a great day and we'll be following and rooting for you thanks dennis and thanks everyone for tuning in and trimming in appreciate it all right brother see you later peace there's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced inclusive and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys i am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos. Welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.